wonderful time in the back. If you remain with me, I encourage you to turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 John chapter 2. Uh, of course, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can certainly uh, follow along the bulletins or on the screen as well. We can provide you there. Um, as, you're, as you're turning here, just a quick story. Um, about 15 years ago, and I was thinking about this, uh, about 15 years ago now, I was in a, a church history class with a professor. During my seminary education. And he was new to the seminary, and I never had been as a professor before. So we went to that very first class, and come on. We went to that very first class, and uh, he went through the syllabus as most professors do as they go through the syllabus. And at the very end, he talked about all the knowledge that we're going to accrue as a class this he said, you're going to gain a lot of knowledge, and you're going to gain a lot of maturity as a result of all of that knowledge. What are you going to do with that knowledge? Are you going to use that knowledge to make other people feel small? Or are you going to use that knowledge to build other people to love them with the things that you've learned? And obviously that, 15 years later, has stuck with me. something that I will never forget from those moments been sort of etched into my memory, and that question has been left with me. What we are given, how are we loving and caring for others? Well, in the ancient church, uh, there was a school of thought, uh, often called heresy, but it's a school of thought that was called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism believed that every person had to be on this journey to discover this secret knowledge about God that is happening. And you always had to be looking for the secret knowledge, and salvation would only come if you discovered this secret knowledge. And really, at the end of the day, it only came to a very select few amount of people. And so the Apostle John and many of the New Testament writers are combating this way of thinking. Uh, they're combating Gnosticism with what they're writing. And we see that in First John. He doesn't dismiss the importance of knowledge. But he says that if you possess knowledge and you somehow lose love, then your knowledge is worthless. It's worthless. True knowledge, true faith in God is always about love. It always leads to love. It's love for God. It's love for others. We never mature beyond our need to love. And without love, without building others up, even if you have a lot of knowledge, and even if you have a lot of maturity, all of it without love is worthless. That's really what John talks about in this letter. So we turn to John chapter 2, and then we read just six verses. John chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfect. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Let's pray again. 
Father, thank you so much for just the gift of worship. And, uh, the songs that we read today, the, the songs that we uh, sung, and, uh, the faith that we declared together. God, what a gift of worship, what a gift of this community of faith really is. And Father, we pray that as we look to the word now, uh, as we study it, as we meditate upon it, uh, that you would speak to us through your word, uh, that you would shape us and mold us into who you desire for us to be. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and to do that very thing, to take these words and to change our lives through you. So be with us as we reflect on your scriptures. We pray all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, many of you know that uh, I coach a local uh, high school cross-country track field team, and uh, we're in the middle of our season right now, and things are really busy. Um, and I've been doing this for quite some time, but one of the things that we do in this season is once a month, uh, we just about every month, we take about a half hour at practice, and we go over the bases. We remind them, right, this is how you want to use your hands when you run, this is what you, how you want to keep your head still, this is where you want to point your eyes forward, and we go through all these things really about once a month. And uh, I've got, we call them the fundamentals. And I've got athletes that have been running in middle school and high school for seven or eight years now. Every month they've been stepping back for a half hour and thinking about the fundamentals of their sport. And if you're a good coach, you realize that we never really move, it doesn't matter what sport it is, you never really move past what the sport is called fundamentals and going over the fundamentals. We never mature beyond those most important and basic things. Well, in many ways, our faith is very similar to that. And that's what the Apostle John is getting at in his letter. This first letter of John, which we're in our second meeting into it now, this first letter of John is one of the simplest letters in all of the Bible. It's written in the simplest of Greek, so if you're learning Greek, this is where you want to start, because it's the simplest language that John can put forward. Uh, it actually doesn't even feel like a letter as you're reading it. It feels more like a, a long, extended sermon that the Apostle John is giving. It, uh, is giving. And, and one uh, writer said, you know, this is really just a letter that helps us recall the fundamentals, the fundamentals of the now remember, as I mentioned before, there were, there were other teachers going on in this first century New Testament world, and they were declaring about this advanced knowledge that you needed to know in order to understand the faith. And many of John's, uh, many of John's readers uh, and his, the people in his churches had fallen prey to this school of thought that they needed to have this advanced knowledge. And all they did was they would leave the church. They would leave John's church to chase after this advanced knowledge. And that's why John says, no, 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 it's not about having an advanced knowledge. It's about the fundamentals of the faith. And that's what John gets out of his letter. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at three sort of fundamentals. The first is the truth about who we are. The second is the truth about who God is. And lastly is the impact it ought to have these are fundamentals that we never mature past. We never mature past our need for these things. We never mature past our need for love and our call to love. That's John's point in our passage this morning. 
So let's start firstly with the, the truth about who we are. The truth about who we are. And to do that, let's sit back a little bit in chapter 1. I know we looked at last week, uh, but John fills it out here. Chapter 1, verse 8, he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth of God is not in us. And then in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. One of the most clear things that you see all throughout the scriptures, and what all the scriptures speak about, is the truth that each and every one of us are sinful. We are born sinful, we are born as sinners, and we perpetuate that sinfulness every day as we rebel against God's word, as we commit sins today. That word sin, simply explained, is sin is anything that we may think, anything we may do, or anything that we might say that is contrary to God's will, to God's law, and God's design for our lives. And what that means is there is not a single part of our lives that are not somehow touched by our own sinfulness. It affects our minds, it affects our thought life, the things that we think about each day. Sin affects our will, it affects our behavior, it affects our choices, it affects our emotions. And if we're going to use the language we've been using uh, in our adult formation class, it's part of our identity as well. It's an identity that we have to own. It's a label that sticks when it comes to our lives. And the truth is, sin isn't just a problem out there in the world or somehow outside of us, but it's a problem in here, and it's a problem in here as well. Sin is a reality. And so one of the first movements of the gospel we talk about, one of the first movements of the gospel is the movement that opens our eyes to this reality of who we are, the fact that we are sinful. I spent most of my life growing up in churches, and uh, I learned at a very early age uh, how to play the game well, if you know what I mean. Uh, I was a pretty blind kid in most aspects. I was well thought of by others. I had this sort of reputation, that's a good kid, uh, he's not a malcontent or anything like that. And so people thought well of me as well, and so I sort of believed my own press as well. <laughs> well thought of by other people. And I think if you would ask him at a very young age, do you know that you're a sinner? I would say, yeah, you know, cognitively, that I am a sinner. That's the right answer, that's what I'm supposed to say. But for many years, I never really felt a true of what that is, the true weight of my own sin. Then I can remember when I was around uh, 18 or 19, a couple circumstances that conspired in my life, and, and for whatever reason it was, I felt at that moment really the full weight of what it meant that I was a sin. The full weight and the full impact of all those things. Sure, I was a compliant kid, I was well liked by others, I had a good reputation, but the disease of sin in my heart, just like it was in everyone else's. It saturated every part of my life. It was a part of my nature. No one had to teach me how to sin. I, I knew how to do that from the very beginning. And that moment, while it felt like a ton of bricks and it was a painful realization, that realization, that conviction 
end of the day, it's from the hand of God. And the same is true for each one. You see, John was dealing with people that deny this reality about who they are. And if you think about it, we still see those denials in our world today, don't we? Some believe that we're born innocent, that maybe we're born with a clean slate. Some believe that humanity uh, is basically good at the very end of the day. And so we don't like to use the word sin anymore. It's uh, not a good word anymore. And so we say, well, I, I just had a misstep or um, a mistake or a, a misunderstanding. And when we do that, when we deny the reality of sin, what we do is we deny the truth of God. We deny it outright. Sinful is a label that sticks. Sinful is who we are, and our struggle with it is on. One of the other challenges that John dealt with was people claiming that once you become a Christian, you stop sinning entirely. And uh, one of the things we'll see is that, yes, uh, the character of sin does change when we enter into a relationship with Jesus, when we become a Christian, but we will always struggle with the nature of sin in our lives. To deny the reality of sin is to deny the reality of truth. And John doesn't mean any words here. If you deny the reality of sin, you are making God out to be a liar. Wow, that's a powerful statement. To deny the reality of who we are is to call God a liar. But to accept it, to own it, to grasp this reality is really the first movements of the gospel in our lives. We are sinful. We deserve the just punishment of a God who we offended left to ourselves, we are helpless to fix this reality or to change our own identity. And that compares us to the second fundamental that John talks about here, and that is the truth of who God is, the truth of who God is. So look at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. John says, my little children, and I love that phrase, my little children. I sometimes think John is shouting at them, like, oh, God's going to get it together. Really, I think this is his term of intimacy for this congregation that he loves so deeply. And so he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole so what is John doing here? He's reminding them in chapter 1, right? Sinful reality. God grasp that. But then, in chapter 2, he brings them to the reality of who God is. He brings them to Jesus. He speaks to them about who Jesus is. First, he calls them the righteous one. The fact that Jesus is sinless while we are sinful. Jesus himself was, is, and is the only one who was ever sinless, the only ever innocent one. He was the one who lived perfectly according to God's will and God's design. Never once did Jesus violate the commandment or the design of God. He was tempted, Hebrews tells us, he was tempted just as you and I are, and yet he withstood that temptation. He is one who is without sin. So Jesus is the only one that can wear the label righteous. He's the only one that can make that claim. He's the only one who 
clean hands and a pure heart. John tells us that he's our advocate. Another way of translating that word is that Jesus is our helper. His react, the reality tells us that we in our sinfulness are helpless because of our sin. And so Jesus becomes our ultimate helper before the Father. He speaks and he acts on our behalf and for our good. And the last thing John says here is he is the propitiation for our sins. Now, uh, scholars have really struggled with how exactly it's a big fancy theological word, propitiation. How exactly do we do we translate a word like that? Some want to translate it as the fact that Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. And word atonement means that Jesus brought us back. And I think whatever we think about this, we have to be a little careful with how we articulate this idea of propitiation. I think there's some out there that, that have presented the gospel way that pictures God the Father as angry and full of wrath. And that, that God is all about anger and wrath. And Jesus somehow comes along and Jesus is all about grace and all about love. And Jesus sort of steps in a way from the angry and wrathful Father. I don't think that's an accurate picture of what the gospel tells us. What the gospel tells us is that Jesus uh, and God the Father were in lockstep with one another. Together they inspired, and it was their desire to bring about the remedy for our sin. So some have said that's the best way of translating that word propitiation. We should translate it as a remedy. That each and every one of us have the disease of sin, and Jesus himself is the cure. Jesus is the remedy. His Sacrifice on our behalf satisfies the wrath of God for our sin. He is our advocate and He is our substitute. And He did all this to turn into chapter 1, verse 9, to make this possible. If we confess our sins, own up to who we truly are, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. Just think about that. It is enough. Jesus, what Jesus did is enough to bring about the forgiveness of our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. No sin is too great. No unrighteousness is too polluted to escape the cleansing hands of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so when we own up to the truth of who we are, when we recognize the truth of who God is, then we receive a new we aren't just sinners, but we are forgiven sinners. We aren't just helpless, instead we become the helped. We aren't estranged anymore, instead we are brought into the family of God, and we are adopted as his children. We are no longer polluted, instead we have become cleansed from our pollution. Though we are unrighteous as people, we are this is what Jesus says. Not because of who we are, as if we somehow are it, but because of who God is and what he has done for us. So John wants them to see the fundamental truth of who we are, of who God is, but then finally he wants us to see this. That that truth isn't just about knowledge. That that truth must and necessarily have 
impacts our lives. We'll see more of this as we go throughout the book, but look at verse 3. John says it very plainly. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Some have argued that John here is providing um, uh, what some would call a test of faith. And I don't necessarily love that word, test, because it punches up a lot of anxieties and emotions and things for us. But I understand what folks are getting at when they say this. Because in John's day, and in our day, a lot of people scratch their heads and wonder the simplest of questions. They wrestle with the simplest of questions. Am I a Christian or not? Maybe you've wondered that as well. Maybe you've grown up in the church, you still have moments where you wonder, do I really get it? Is it really sunk in? Am I really and truly a Christian? Imagine how John's uh, uh, parishioners, his congregation, would have felt as well. Remember, they got teachers coming in who were telling them, well, you have to have this secret and select knowledge in order to be a Christian. You have to have all this special secret, and if you have that special secret, you're part of that select few, then you are a Christian. So they had to wonder themselves, do I have the knowledge that is necessary? Do I have enough? Am I enlightened enough to be accepted by God? Am I really forgiven? I really one of God's name. Well, John says here, if you're going to have this test, it doesn't necessarily come according to knowledge. The test comes in your life and how your life is lived. See, what John is arguing here is he's saying, if you are one of God's name, if you are a Christian, it will be your delight and your desire to keep God's name. And if you keep those commandments, then you will resemble Jesus Christ himself. So if you've truly come to terms with the reality of who you are, and you've truly come to terms with the reality of who Christ is, who God is, and by faith you've embraced those things, John is saying here, it will necessarily impact the way And if there is no impact whatsoever, then you must wonder whether you truly grasp these fundamentals, whether you truly grasp these realities. I thought about how to articulate this this week, and this illustration came to mind, so take it for what it's worth. Imagine uh, you have struggled financially your entire life, and you've struggled for years with finances, and it's, it's so bad that that, uh, that all you've ever been able to do is live on ramen noodles. You know what those ramen noodles are? You pour the water and you stick it in the microwave. They're like 25 cents for a thing of ramen noodles. So your whole life has struggled financially and you've only been able to live on ramen noodles your whole life. And then all of a sudden, you learn one day that you have a great uncle you've never met, but that great uncle has passed away and has now left you with millions and millions of dollars. You've inherited this from this uncle that you didn't even know about. And you learn about that news, and yet you still only ever eat ramen noodles for dinner. Right? Great, ramen noodles can be really good, but you can now afford so much more, but you only ever live with the ramen noodles. Are you living in light of this new reality that you live in? No, you're not. You're still living according to the old ways. Go out and buy a steak and enjoy it. Live in light of this new reality. That's what John is arguing here. 
He says, if your life hasn't been impacted in some way by the gospel, then you have to wonder whether that truth has really something. And if it has something, then it means that your life will change. You've been forgiven, you've been accepted, you've been adopted. All of the riches, we just talked about financial riches, how about spiritual ones? All the riches of the spiritual realm have been given to you in Jesus Christ. You are spiritually rich in the eyes of God. And that means your sin no longer defines who you are as a person. The sentence of death and condemnation has been removed. That is earth-shatteringly good news. And it ought to have tremendous impact on the way you live. We throw around this word gospel a lot in the church, and uh, that word gospel is important, but it, was, it wasn't only used in the context of Christianity in the first century world. Uh, in the first century world, when someone said they had the gospel, it just meant they had good news. And so what would happen is if something cataclysmic happened in the world, as if uh, a king conquered a new land, or uh, freed a bunch of people, or liberated a bunch of people, you know, you didn't check the internet back then to find out that earth-shattering news. Instead, it would spread from town to town. There would be heralds, there would be messengers that would arrive from town to town. And as they entered in, they would declare this word gospel. I have good news that I come to bring to you. And if you were living in that town or village, and you knew that herald came to town and proclaimed that word gospel, the thing that they were about to say was going to change every single Everything is about to change when that good news So the first Christians say this is what the faith is all about. It's not just good news. It is the greatest of all news. This is why the angels declare at the birth of our Savior that they come to bring good news of great joy. Why? Because everything is about to change, including each one. So John wants these young believers to know that with the gospel comes the change. It changes their lives. He wants them to consider their lives. He wants to remind them, yes, Jesus loves you more than you can imagine. He's done everything to accomplish your salvation. He gave his life for you. Now, now, make his love complete. By living according to his plans, his desires, and his let the word of the gospel change your life. I think the message, it was powerful then, it's just as powerful for us today as well. Does your life, does your daily life reflect Jesus? One writer said that all claims to the knowledge of God by people who fail to love their others are false and deceitful. All claims to knowledge of God by people who fail to love their brothers are false and deceitful. God's love is a love that gives. He gave up himself for you, and that means you are called by him to give of yourself to others. In so doing, you reflect Jesus to our world, his love.